Lauren. Hello. Hi, Lauren. Hi, Christine. Hello. Hi, Christine. And Lauren. She heard you. Look. Oh, hey, Kyla. Long time no see. Yes, you can say hi. You can say hi. Yeah. Hi, Kyla. Girl, your curls are perfect tonight, Kaya. I know you've grown so much, Kaya. It's been like what? four years. Yeah. How? Yeah. It's Christine from Food School. Are you excited? Food School? She actually asked the other day again. Food School. Oh, really? <laughs> Don't worry, yeah. Kaya. We're not going to do Food School. Hello, and welcome to Table for Five with no reservations. Take a seat at the table for a fresh, sweet, salty, tart, and pleasantly bitter conversation. I want to thank everyone for taking a seat at the table. Today we have Lauren and Christine with us to talk about feeding stuff. So we are really happy to continue our expert series. With me tonight, I have Tabitha. Hello. Kimmy. Hi. Jamie. Hello. And Jen. Hi, everyone. And I'm Rachel. Lauren and Christine came to us through... Jen's extraordinary experience with their clinic. So um, we are just so grateful to have you guys here, both because we know you're incredible. We've all learned from you and because we know that your experience is so vast. Do you guys want to introduce yourselves a bit? Sure, we can do that. My name is Lauren Benendike, and I am the founder and director of a private practice in Vancouver, Canada, where we specialize in helping kids with significant feeding challenges. Well, kids, we you know, anywhere between the ages of 18 months to adulthood. So all ages. And my background is I'm a behavior analyst. I have a PhD in special education. And I also have a daughter who's 12 years old. Thank Christine. you, Lauren. And You're Christine, welcome. you guys have worked together for a long time, correct? Long time. Yes. Yes. I started in this field about 20 years ago as a therapist working with families and Lauren was the consultant on the team. And I was really appreciative for her work ethic and her compassion for families. And I didn't see that in all consultants. And so, yeah, we worked together, followed families. And then I actually helped with her coding for her PhD amongst <laughs> other things. And then, yeah, for about the past 13 years, I've sort of devoted and specialized in feeding disorders. And I'm also a behavior analyst and I have my master's in special education. We love some expert ladies. <laughs> so good to be a duo. Cause I feel like you can just lean on each other to grow. And I know that what you guys have given families locally in BC has been incredible. I say life-saving knowing exactly what you've done for our friend. I just appreciate it so much. I, do you want to tell our listeners well, first, could you clarify one thing for me? This is not on our notes. I apologize. We've had, as I explained before recording, we've had a hundred episodes. We've got this really great rapport with our listeners. And one of the things that I hear in engaging with our audience is sometimes people say like they, they expose them to a bunch of food as they were little. And as a result, there's no feeding issues. And I just sort of, want some expert debunking because I feel like it isn't that simple. It's not like, because I gave them carrots brand new, they're going to love Bernays sauce when they're three. <laughs> like everything else is just rolls right off. I feel like there's more to it. I mean, there certainly is a range of sort of flexibility or adventure in eating. So you have on your one end of the, the continuum, you have your neophobic kind of situation where the kid is highly, highly fearful of eating. And then on the other end is the, what they call neophilic, where they're just 
open and adventurous to any sort of type or texture, you know, we'll eat mussels on the first go or oysters yeah. or something so foreign. And, and it has very little to, well, you know, we were going to talk today about the importance of exposures and why, you know, when parents give up after the first or second exposure, it's, it's just not a good idea. You have to keep practicing and practicing, but yeah, I, I definitely believe that kids also have certain predispositions or temperaments that help them be an excellent eater. Exposures are essential, but they're not, they're not everything. Oh Genes play a, yeah, a, a big piece of this too. So, well, then it's just that, also layered that really answers it quickly. I'm sorry to jump right into the middle there, but yeah. it's so hard <laughs> because we hear so often like this dismissive nature about feeding stuff. And it doesn't come down to just one thing that your kid ends up struggling with these no huge yeah. parts of life and living, you know? Yeah. And feeding um, is so complex. Yeah. What are the, I know, as you said, that there's such a range, but what are the specific kind of challenges that you guys treat in your clinic? Okay. So it obviously is a range. We work with kids who have total food refusal and have never really consumed anything by mouth and a feeding tube to sustain their caloric intake. And then there's kids with, you know, severe food selectivity and uh, sen sensory sensitivities our texture sensitivities. We treat kids who have a diagnosis of ARFID, kids who are not consuming table food. So they're just on purees. And that's usually because of lack of oral motor skills, kids who have, you know, eaten a range of foods younger, and then had some type of negative event, like a choking mm -hmm. incident. And because of that, then have dropped all these foods. Um, kids who are bottle dependent. So they only consume formula or milk. Can you, you explain uh, ARFID? just for our listeners sake, what that is in case they don't know. Sure. sure. So a recent <laughs> diagnosis in the GSM, it stands for avoidant restricted food intake disorder. So it's actually kind of neat because it, it sort of finally gives a diagnosis to so many of the kids that we treat and yeah. actually labels it as, you know, this is of concern, treats it as an actual problem rather than doctors just saying, oh, when your kid's hungry, they'll eat because yeah. <laughs> we all know that's not the case for lots of the kids we work with. And I'm sure helps with insurance as far as like getting um, service. I mean, anytime you can get some kind of medical category, it helps when you're fighting insurance to pay for certain things, I guess, a diagnosis to go along with your billing practices. DC works a little differently than yeah. we're quite far behind, but the hope is, yeah, if you have a diagnosis, funding usually comes alongside it. Yeah. Hopefully yeah. we know that's not true either <laughs> sometimes, but it's nice to have it in a doctor book. Yeah. <laughs> Something you can label it as. The thing about ARFID too, is it, it helps you define what type of feeding problems. So the way they say an individual has an ARFID diagnosis, if they exhibit one or two or one or more of the following characteristics. And it can be, it encompasses all types of feeding issues. So a sensitivity to taste or texture, or I restrict my eating because I'm afraid of a negative consequence. So I'm afraid of vomiting or choking, or maybe even just gagging is so aversive, I don't want to eat. And then finally addresses the issue of no motivation to eat. So low interest, they call it. So it presents like anorexia, but it isn't because the motivation is just simply no desire, just no, finds no pleasure in eating. It's not about body image or weight control. It's really, you know, it's more hormonal, meaning I just um, have no appetite. Mm. Yeah. And it's a chore to eat. 
so that's that's what's so great about ARFID too is that it helps kind of give some you know definitions and 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 it also talks about like the social consequences. So because for so long you weren't given an eating or a disorder or a label unless you had some sort of uh, nutritional deficiency, and now it's it's less about that because most kids are on some sort of supplement, and it's more about okay, what is the consequence it has on the family or the, their social situation? Mm-hmm. You know, my, I restrict my eating and now it's affecting my ability to go on a date or have a job or mm-hmm. so. So it's all encompassing, which is really helpful too. A lot of clarity. Very, mm-hmm. very validating probably for people too, parents and yeah. people. Yeah. Just, yeah. So to have, finally have a name or it's like, oh my gosh, my child, like these struggles are legit and there's actually some sort of name for it, even if it doesn't come with, you know, I would love our, in our province if the government funded this diagnosis, but no, not yet. Yeah, not yet, not yet. We're putting that into the universe. Yeah. I think as well um, with having that, um, and I don't think that was around when Kaya. It was so new, Jen, you probably didn't, yeah. But it's, you know, it's always a big misconception. And before I had my daughter with autism, I could have never imagined somebody just not wanting to eat. And it it was kind of like that. I remember when we talked about the reward after, there really wasn't a lot of motivation. And then I remember she liked those yogurt treats or whatever, but there was no motivation for those her to melts. Eat. She just, yeah, those melts. I mean, mm-hmm. just take it or leave it. So that's, that's great that they have that now. It's mm-hmm. so many, you know, as you guys are discussing all the things that all the different services that you offer or things that you help to treat, all of us are nodding. And so many of us are thinking of our kid or this child we know or person that we're close to. And I feel like there's such a link between autism and food, whether it comes from a sensory place or an aversion place or whatever. Do you guys have better language than I do about why autistic people have this common, like these common feeding issues? Yeah. (laughs) I mean, we, we present a lot for the autism community in BC. And so we sort of talk about that and it is a, you know, the research shows it's such a prevalent issue amongst individuals with a diagnosis. I mean, some of the research says 84% of kids have feeding struggles, which is pretty remarkable. Yeah. It's really high. Mm -hmm. And so we, in our practice, one of the major reasons why kids struggle with with trying new foods or expanding their diet is because they've had some sort of medical factor, medical issue earlier on. So some sort of gastrointestinal issue. I would say, I would say 80% of the kids we see have had or are currently experiencing gastrointestinal issues, whether it's, mm-hmm. you know, constipation or a leaky gut or what have you. It's, it really does play a part in terms of contributing to this issue because when you're not, when you're feeling unwell, you're not motivated to eat Mm -hmm. or try something new. So that's one factor. The other one is, is some sort of physical reason, like an oral motor delay. A lot of kids we see, we have to teach them how to chew and, Mm -hmm. um, and that can contribute. If it's effortful, you're not going to want to learn to eat, or you're not going to want to try something new. So then again, you start to avoid eating food allergies. And then there's biological reasons, like you're a super taster. Have you heard that? that mm. term you know where yeah where the where taste is like sensory amped experience up. yeah yeah mm-hmm. it's like amp, amped up your uh ability to taste or I guess that's a like common way to explain it amped up yeah like you have a heightened sensitivity and you literally have more taste buds on your tongue and so that can also play a part it doesn't mean you can't learn to eat 
you know, some of those stronger flavors, like bitter flavors, but it will make it more difficult. And then the other reason kids with ASD struggle with eating is just simply, you know, characteristics of that diagnosis, like okay. insistence on sameness or rigidities or mm-hmm. yeah. just sensory sensitivities. Like a lot of kids we're seeing now have the issue is more of a sense, a texture sensitivity. So they have the capability of chewing. They mm-hmm. just don't want to eat anything solid because of the texture. It's just so aversive for them. So they, their parents are mashing their food or pureeing it or giving them formula instead. So for context mm-hmm. for our listeners, when Kaya entered the feeding clinic, she had just, she was eight. It was in June. Her birthday is in April. And Kaya was, you said purees and it reminded me, and I always tell this story. I had a deal with Superstore, which is a Canadian chain of grocery stores that carries um, an organic brand called PC Organics. And every three weeks they would, if I had my order in by three o'clock on a Tuesday, Thursday, I would meet their supply truck and they would load a pallet of 400 pouches into my SUV. And I would do this every three weeks. And that's mainly what she consisted of was those purees. So when those ran out, that became, you know, trying to get that one flavor all the time was so stressful that it was purees and milk. Um, when we came in. So, um, and she was, and I talked about this a little bit before we did, to be clear, this is no slight or dig at what, what people are trying, but Kaya was doing feeding for 15 minutes once a week in occupational therapy. And her occupational therapist said, she's never going to eat this way. And that's how I found Christina Lauren was thankfully through Kaya's occupational therapist that said, she needs some intense intervention. This kid's never going to eat. So that's how I met these ladies. And Jen, for you guys, or for our listeners to tie it, you know, to your full story, you then went in through a full eight, six week or four week, nine days. It was a nine oh, day, nine days. Um, okay. Intense intervention. I chose, they have two different options. I might be different now. So please correct me. One was in center. And then there was a split. And I think Lauren, you're who I did my intake with. And I think you, you explained for children they'll learn to eat somewhere, but it won't transfer over out of the clinic. And so we did the split. And I remember the first night at home trying to feed her myself. It wasn't one of my finer moments. <laughs> you have to have a lot of patience to do it. Um, but I'm really thankful we did the two different places for her so that she also had therapy in the house. And then I chose to do additional follow-up therapies with her. Really, it was more for keeping myself accountable to make sure that I continue to introduce the foods and do the feeding routine at home. Yeah. So that's kind of what, so it was nine days. Just oh, to touch on that real fast, how you talked about like autistic characteristics, how our kids are, most autistic individuals can be incredibly stubborn or they're able to hold out on things. And so what we learned early on was the experience of eating. Like if you make it an unpleasant experience to mm-hmm. be at the table or like how you're talking about the gastro issues, you know, like if my son was having stomach problems and he associated that with food, he just want to eat food. So I think that's a big thing too. And that's why it's so great. You guys do it in multiple places because it's the experience of where you're eating and that a lot of kids, you know, if you're yelling at your kid to sit at the table and they can't leave the table till their food's finished, that was a big thing that we learned is like, Hey, you have to like make it a good experience or they're not going to want to sit there. They would rather not eat than feel like they're stuck somewhere. So I've yeah. also read, um, I don't know if you guys are familiar with this. There's a, I don't know what the word for it is, but, um, that they say that a lot of people that have autism, they don't get the signals that we would get to be hungry 
or or full. I could go either way. It's not proprioceptor. It's like in intro. Interoceptive. And I found that really interesting because people say this all the time with my daughter. They'll, I'll be like, oh, did you feed her? And my husband will be like, no. I mean, she would have come out if she was hungry. And it's like, no, she doesn't. She doesn't have that same thing that we have. And I can tell because then you go to feed her and she's starving. But it's like she doesn't. You know, I am the minute I have a hunger pain, I'm like, it's the end of the world, and you know. <laughs> I need to eat I'm starving but she doesn't like have that and when she was younger she used to not get full like she would just eat if you left the whole pan of spaghetti she would eat the whole pan of spaghetti like you know it's it's that's so interesting to me and it makes a lot of sense I guess too but I don't know if that's a sensory thing or I I think it is I I yeah they do talk I mean that is a big piece of the whole even the ARFA diagnosis is the inability to read cues like never feeling hungry or being you're, you have like a heightened sensitivity to bodily sensation. So the feeling of full is really, really aversive. So you'll see individuals that don't eat a lot because they're afraid of feeling full and that you have to train them. Yeah. And you have to, (laughs) you have to train them on how to feel full. So you do exercise or you drink a lot of water and you watch how your, you know, your stomach expands like, Oh, okay. That's the sensation we're aiming for in therapy. But I mean, Christine could attest to this that most of the kids we see have never asked for food Mm. they don't ask they're not hungry and and it's actually kind of interesting because when we do our work we're very structured we have very set schedules of when we eat and when we don't eat and usually by the intensive the end of the intensive therapy kids are starting to ask for food which is pretty exciting yeah and that's interesting about adversive things that happen like stomach problems or like my daughter was a pretty decent eater until she started getting rashes. She had an allergy to raspberries and she got this flaming, terrible, horrible rash and she has very sensitive skin. And a lot of times it is associated with food. And so I think her brain kind of connected those two things together, the uncomfortableness of the rash paired with eating, which then narrowed down her food, the types of foods that she would eat during the time frame when she was having all these terrible rashes. Um, but a licensed clinical psychologist explained it to me one time that kids who are autistic, their brain have an expectation of things being the same every time. Like if they tell a joke and you laugh, they'll tell it to you again. And they want you to laugh the same exact way that you did the very first time. So I think that's a good like indicator of food. Like if you eat something and it hurts your stomach, why would you eat that again? <laughs> you yeah. know, Cause the expectation is that your stomach is going to hurt the second time. So food and they may is- not be able to think like, Oh, this is this bad pesto zucchini that we ate. It's just all green things now. Yes. Yeah. yeah. There's yeah. this disconnect connecting thing that happens. Yeah. Or they caught yeah. the flu the day they ate macaroni. And so they're never going to eat macaroni again or whatever the, the case may be let's not uh, go too far every, every <laughs> my my I, we connected the two the rashes with the food changes um like a year after it happened finally realizing like why it was narrowing more and more the more um, problems she was having with her skin so it's interesting all the different challenges around eating the the last factor that I say contributes to a kid's selective eating is also it, it ties into what you were saying in terms of insistence on sameness is is processed foods so foods designed for children that are packaged and they have the same components they're mm-hmm. high in fat salt and sugar and they taste the same each and every time. And it really promotes these homogenized tastes and kids just expect food to always taste the same each and every time. Whereas like a home cooked meal isn't going to taste the same each and every time. So mm-hmm. it's really doing kids a disservice. 
these um, processed foods, which is what we struggle at, with. One of the first things we do is if, if a child is just predominantly eating processed foods, we get our nutritionist involved to develop a healthier version of that food. So we can mm. try to slowly change it. But yeah, it's most of the very flavors. challenging to go because once you're like, once you, it's like if you give them the juice box of the sugar, they're not never going to want the one that's like 100% juice. You know, it's like yeah, once no. they get there, the yeah, it's, it's so mm -hmm. hard. We've done it that a lot. We, we've snuck a lot of things into uh, modifying foods, like the macaroni changing to the cauliflower or sweet potato or whatever. But our daughter's pretty smart. I mean, even if there's like a speck of broccoli in it, she's like, no, thank you. But cauliflower, <laughs> we can usually uh, modify or sweet potatoes or something like that um, if it's preferred. But well, it's so challenging because I know with Alyssa, like she literally only ate two things. So it's like, you can't be picky. She ate news grain bars and cheese doodles and she ate fine. She ate fine, like as a baby, baby food, like all different things. And then all of a sudden it just like, it whittled down. It was right around the time. Like not that we got her diagnosis, but that she started really showing a lot of signs. Mm -hmm. And that's literally, but it was 26 years ago. They didn't have feeding things then. Like they were just like, well, she's eating something. And it was, and then the one thing, the next thing she ate, I think was she would eat like these frozen pizzas, but they were a Pacific brand. She would eat no, nothing, no other kind of pizza, no other kind of frozen pizza. You just, she wouldn't budge. And I don't mean, we, cut the darn thing in a square, I'm sure. Like I mean, you, I hear the stories right all way. the time of um, foods changing packaging and kids won't eat them. Oh my gosh, mm -hmm. COVID-19 so just had to make a lot of people more flexible by way of fire, like trial by fire. Mm -hmm. I, and it's hard because you don't always the, have this information before. You know what I mean? It's like, you're not, you're kind of like not realizing it's happening. That's why mm -hmm. like things like this is great because then people can maybe have the information beforehand so they can kind of follow certain things and take these tips and tricks that you guys haven't like try to, I, I have a child without autism who's extremely restrictive. She's 20 and her, her diet is ridiculous, but it's funny when you say it's genetic because she almost has like the autism diet, although she's, she doesn't have autism and it, her thing is texture and it has to be like a certain temperature. Like if her food's mm. cooled down, she can't eat it. it it's like she can communicate with it now because she's 20 like I can it, it's so crazy to me do you know it's like if if you're cooking one thing and then you're waiting for the other thing to finish that little bit of cool down she she won't eat it and she won't wow. eat people have said to me oh she'll eat she won't she'll go to bed hungry before she would eat something that she didn't like so it's like it's so funny how you say it can almost be like part of it can be like biological because my daughter with autism actually eats a lot better than her at this point it, it took her a long time because she got down to like it was like one food at a time got added in and for forever she ate like five things but now mm -hmm. she eats like but if, if she eats something and we don't give it to her for a while like she used to then eat you lose it again and we didn't have it now she won't eat it well she eats plenty of things so it's like not an issue and it's not like you it's not something you have to have in your diet but um that's what's hard with the autism too because once you take it out even unknowingly like it wasn't like a part it's probably because it's so damn expensive we don't have it as much <laughs> <laughs> I feel like there's lots of little tricks like not taking stuff you know like continuing to introduce them but one of the tricks that we've made up for food and look you guys could debunk this too. Maybe this is just a Rachel Flanagan. I try, we have this like cyclical stuff with food with my daughter. And often I'll try and like cut the mac and cheese in squares versus triangles just to keep it flexible. Even if I am not changing 
the bread or the specific cheese this time. Like I just try and like keep things kind of loose. Do you guys feel like sticking to like keeping it all consistent is a way through or keeping flexibility? A really good question. And I think it all comes down to the kid. There's, you know, there's that therapist to a parent answer. There it is. (laughs) I do understand that though, Christine. I didn't mean to be. Yeah, no, it's fine. (laughs) That's, you know, sometimes that's the way we sort of start is we slowly change their current foods and we teach them the process. And then for other kids, it's like, it's way too challenging. It's better. It'd be easier to introduce a new food or a slight variation rather than changing their preferred. Because the worry is if you change it, they drop it and they've maybe only got three foods. So yeah, we only sell, we only make dinosaur chicken nuggets here. (laughs) Here too. Here too. We don't nugget a nugget, okay? <laughs> but having that said that, once we introduce a food, that is a strategy we use. We try and change, you know, you cut your sandwich in triangles and some days they're in squares just to keep kids more flexible in how they accept foods. Can you guys talk a little bit about like the process of the therapy, like getting into the therapy, like what you look at for the kids, how that works a little bit for anyone who would maybe be seeking this type of therapy? Yeah, sure. So, so uh, one big thing to note and sort of explains our whole, well, sort of is the rationale for our whole model of, in our clinic or our program is that eating is a learned behavior. Mm-hmm. You know, kids come into the world with two reflexes and those fade at about three to four months. And then their experience and with food and other factors that we've already talked about then plays a role. So if they associate something negative with eating, they're going to obviously it's going to affect their eating. So in the research, the, all the research shows that a behavioral approach is sort of the most well-documented and has the most empirical support for treating food refusals. And so the big strategy is through repeated taste exposures. You learn by liking the food. So that's where, you know, our program is really based on repeated tastings and we teach kids how to taste food. It's not about portions initially, it's about tiny tastes. And so we start with really small bites. Sometimes it's uh, just smelling a food initially just Mm. to get them. But Christine, when you say small bites, she's, for our listeners, she's talking a micro speck on a plate. Like sometimes when I look back on the videos, I'm like, where's that apple? Oh, there it is. Like really small and building from that. A crumb. Yeah. So and I know that this works because um, I always text Christine pictures of chicken because I was positive Kaya didn't like chicken. So it was one of the meats that we introduced in the beginning and she didn't like it. And I was like, okay, we're done. No chicken. Cause I just thought she didn't like it. And I was like, I don't want Christine's like, well, you should try it a few more times because she has to try it enough times to not like it and it's literally her favorite one of her favorite it's she probably has chicken four nights a week just to bake chicken breast in the oven (laughs) and then you should see her go to church's chicken i mean that is a situation (laughs) holy like there's not even a hair left on that bone I mean she just oh oh, lifts it clean and Um, do you remember well this is like do you remember how many times you practiced chicken before it got easy I don't remember how many times but it was a lot of times it was a lot lot. to get her yeah yeah Yeah. Yeah. so they say between like for kids without feeding challenges 10 to 15 exposures is what it takes to 
sort of learn to like a food. Oh, I am making a reel of that little fact for my daughter. Yeah. Try that 15 so, more times before you tell me no with a capital. A. Yeah, yeah, that's that's exactly it. That's yeah. What I say uh, so the big <laughs> mistake is giving up too soon on food. Oh, yeah. 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 And if you like say a person couldn't or doesn't have this type of therapy available to them, like what would you suggest for someone trying this at home? Like for any of us who have kiddos who possibly have restrictive diets, like what would you suggest? What should we try first or how? Mm. And I know that like, like my kids roam to eat. I, they like to walk and eat and we haven't really like we've practiced sitting at the table and they'll sit in different spaces like at school when everyone else is sitting things like that but we haven't pressed them being forced to sit in a certain space because it elevates the situation so I know it depends on like the kids like some kids can sit no problem at a table with everybody else but what would you suggest for like the actual practicing of the food? This is such an important question. Um, we just recently as a, as a group started an email campaign. And that's one of the first topics I want to talk about because it changes the, we spend a lot of time as a team trying to figure out what are those first foods, because we want this to be such a su successful experience for the child and parent. And we want the child to look forward to sessions. And so you have to make sure that your first foods are easy. I, I designed this online course. And even in the first module, it's the same idea. It's like easy, easy foods. And parents are like, no, no, but my, I want my child to eat broccoli. I'm like, I know, but we'll get there. It's like a path of least resistance. We first have to start with easy foods and sort of warm them up to this idea of, I'm asking you to try a bite of something. And now you're, you're going to choose the size of bite or what have you, but you're going to try it for me. So you want it to be easy. So you have success and the child, your child has success and feels confidence. So those first foods are foods that are what we call hit and miss. So they eat on occasion, but just not all the time. So, okay. um, or foods that closely, closely resemble their diet. Like one child, we worked on a new flavor of fishy cracker. Mm. And so they were eating, no, it was, they were eating fishy crackers and we worked on cheddar bunnies, which is like a different brand, mm -hmm. like different shape, but still uh, same flavor. And it took him all day. By the end of the day, he ate one cheddar bunny, which is like the same size as a fishy cracker in 10 bites. So he ate that one. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah 10 bites for a cheddar yeah, our bunny. Side bite sizes are yeah. yeah, but he did it and he and was that, successful and he didn't run away from there was no, you know, there was no tantrum. There's no escalation. There was no, he didn't shut down on us. He was engaged and participating. So, so I can amazing. tell you as a parent that went into this and I told this story before, I tell a lot of stories, I'm like an old person. I just repeat myself. They just nod and they're like, yeah, yeah. I remember walking into your building. There's a Starbucks down below, Rachel, you'd love it. It's perfect. There's a Starbucks right there. And I remember walking up to that elevator going, here we go. I couldn't imagine her eating. I just couldn't imagine it. And so I remember when I got the intake paperwork, it was give us a list of, I'm just making up these numbers, 20 foods you want to see her eat. And I remember I said to my mom, food, I couldn't even imagine what okay. I could put on there for her to eat. So, you know, when we went into the clinic, nothing shape was considered solid. It was Cheerios, dissolvable pouches, that kind of stuff. Kaya, you know, she came out of there eating eggs. And this is a the one of the best tips you ladies. I mean, you gave me a ton of tips, but I initially made them like scrambled eggs. And I've told this story as well. She couldn't really get it on her fork. So Christine, you made it like an, or had me make it like an omelet and chop it in bigger pieces. It was easier for her to pick up. And she still eats her eggs like that today. I just make it like an omelet and then chop it up into little pieces. 
Um, she came out eating eggs, toast and peanut butter, almost every fruit you could possibly imagine, almost every vegetable. Like this kid loved eggplant when we left the feeding clinic. <laughs> she loved <laughs> eggplant. <laughs> to this day, she eats broccoli and carrots every single day, roasted potatoes, sweet potatoes, yams, chicken, turkey, uh, a wonderful recipe of meatballs. It's in the feeding clinic recipe book. This kid came out. I couldn't even believe it. The, the foods that she came out eating. And she, she really liked the structure of it. She really liked, she called it food school. She enjoyed how the praise she got from it when she would try something. So mm-hmm. a lot of times she'll still say video to Christine because she's wants her to see that she's eating this food. She started sleeping better when we went in. She had these dark, dark circles under her eyes. She hadn't, she couldn't go to the bathroom. She would strain. She actually, to this day, has issues with her, um, her bowel movements from all of those years of having no nutrition and and straining to go to the bathroom. So it, it wasn't even just the feeding, which obviously was the main benefit, but it was everything that kind of got associated with her finally eating a little bit better sleeping. It it took a while, but eventually those circles, you know, she started to get some color back in her face. Life-changing. Incredible. uh, Yeah, it really was. It was an experience that I can't fully articulate or explain because a lot of people, they're like, well, my kid's a picky eater. I'm like, no, I learned this. That's a a behavior. If you're a typical child, that's a behavior. This is, so again, people think, well, she'll eat if she's hungry. Right. She's she's still somewhat rigid, like she eats Annie's mac and cheese, which is what we introduced at the clinic. She will not eat craft dinner. She loves the theory of it. I get sucked into buying five boxes of it every time we're in the store. <laughs> she won't eat it. But you know, it's that kind My of my kids do, do that too. Like Nixon loves the process of making a smoothie, but he doesn't want to eat it drink when it's either. done. <laughs> yeah. Or like hot liquids, loves the process of making hot chocolate. I no. can get him to take a sip, but does not like the tech, the temperature of hot chocolate. Um, but <laughs> my, what well, it's hard for me to imagine, I guess, is like, th- there's a therapy. We all do this as parents who deal with a lot of therapies or, you know, we go to the clinic, they teach us some skills and then we bring them home and try and implement them at home. But what would you, what are your tips if you want to try this at home? If you want to sit down and actually like, do this micro food or work on one food for like a week or change the color of the fishy crackers. I think you call them. I love that you called them fishy crackers. (laughs) (laughs) How would you do that? If you want to try like one thing at home, like it say, like for my daughter, she loves macaroni and cheese, you know, cheese on bread is basically her staple. If I wanted to like try and add something more nutritious into that what what would you suggest a parent doing at home if we can't go to the clinic and like do this actual therapy situation well I'll I'll talk about the food and Christine could talk about the strategies but so so let's use your daughter's example of cheese on bread so one idea would be to change the bread so say she was eating white bread and we wanted her to eat a healthier bread so we would find like a a whole grain protein dense bread which okay. is why we have a nutritionist that helps us find these products and that it has sort of a similar, like a good texture to it, like an even texture, no seeds. And so okay. let's say that, so we'll switch the bread first. So it's kind of like a benign change, not too dramatic. And then Christine can tell you how she'd get her to tell the parent how to feed her. One thing I so don't far. think we've talked a lot about yet is the motivation piece. Yeah. yeah. So kids 
aren't motivated to change their eating. So we have to use other ways to motivate them. So whether that be their favorite treats, which I know we get a bad rap for that as behavior analysts, but our thought is how else are we going to get these kids to eat? Like you've probably tried everything yourselves and you're having no success. So, um, but we are very stingy and, you know, we'll cut a tiny, tiny arrow bar and make it last the whole session or even two sessions. Um, so motivations one, it doesn't have to be food. Um, screens or videos are a big one that we use a lot because that's what kids are motivated by. And it's really important that they don't get access to those things for in other areas, which can be hard to restrict access, but kids mm. are really smart and they know, well, it's okay. I don't need to try this food because, you know, in a couple hours, I'll get a cookie anyway. So why do I need to try this food? So maybe it's, you know, if they really like chocolate, finding a new chocolate bar and they only get that for these special tasting sessions. So motivation is a big one. And then starting with something really easy that you know that they're going to have success with because A, we don't want them to escalate because then you've lost them. You want to start with something that's going to be super easy. So your daughter, for instance, you change the bread and instead of presenting a whole slice of bread with cheese on it, which that can be really overwhelming, you maybe just bring a small cube with a tiny amount of cheese on it. Mm -hmm. And the expectation isn't that she eats it initially. It could just be that she smells it. And maybe you do that for 10 times. And every time she smells it, she earns, I don't know what she's motivated by. Uh, well her her school listed she's highly motivated by snacks like her mom <laughs> okay so find a snack and every time she smells it she um she earns a, a tiny I don't know say a chocolate gummy chocolate. yeah it's like she, she's really into fruit snacks for sure okay uh, snacks. yeah oh yeah so Kaya was very motivated she was really into Angelina ballerina um, and so she would always bring this doll into our sessions. And so we always modeled and used Angelina first. So Angelina was going to smell the bread. And then, um, you know, we let Angelina smell it. And then it was Kaya's turn. So modeling is a really good strategy. You could model smelling it. Um, mm -hmm. so they see sort of what's expected. The other strategy that works really well with kids is to have some type of visual so that they know when it's going to end. So whether it's just boxes, like we're going to do this five times and then you're done. So she's going to smell it five times. And, you know, as she goes, you can cross it off or, you know, take pictures off. Yeah, that's interesting. See, some parents are really like, oh, really? Like, is it going to, is pictures really that helpful? But I just say, think of a work day and you, you have to work eight hours and all the clocks are taken away. And you have no idea when you're shifting. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And our kids, Whereas, you know, think, if you have a yeah. clock, you know, you can, okay, I only got an hour left. I can do this. Yeah. And our kids think in photo, I mean, like a lot of them mm -hmm. think in photographs. And so it makes more sense to them to be like, oh, here's a picture of five, whatever. If we're sometimes gonna we even it. have the expectation in a picture. Like we have five yeah. small pictures. Yeah. And then once they're readily smelling a food, then we up it to kissing or licking. So again, same strategies. Every time she were to kiss the food, you would give her a snack, a fruit snack. And then when she's kicking, kissing it, then we go to licking. And then the next ones eat. And like, it's a speck, like barely detectable. Like it's a crumb. Like, it's just so silly that it's like, why wouldn't they eat it? Because they're going to earn all these fun things. <laughs> From a tiny day. Yeah. Jen talks that about that a little bit about the watermelon, which I always found really fascinating that it was like tiny, tiny, tiny 
little tiny piece of watermelon that's easily dissolvable in your mouth because yeah, it's basically like chew it. yeah basically just um liquid in a fruit exactly. form yeah so there are some techniques like those that we can try at home but then there's also looking at your local community and one of the things that takes or that you know kind of makes our listeners different is that we really do go from Canada I'm sorry from you guys where you are in Canada to Boston and north and south like we are everywhere so we have a lot of listeners in rural areas that they might not have access to clinics like yours um, but you have an online program and you've mentioned your newsletter could you talk to us a little bit about how you can connect with our people even if they aren't in your neighborhood mm-hmm and or the, new, the language to look for, you know, to find what you do. To with. find a service that's similar. Yeah. Well, that's a good question. Um, so first of all, the newsletter just started this year and it was my idea to kind of give parents helpful information in sort of a tangible way. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and we designed it in such a way so that you get a series of emails with sm- small snippets of info. So you just, because I know everyone has like two minutes to read it. And so my nutritionist and I are working on it. So some of them are strategies like how to use reinforcement or what foods should I start with? And then she has ones on how to design the perfect smoothie. She's really into smoothies or what have you. Some other <laughs> yeah. yeah, yes, it's great. And then the course was an idea that came out of COVID when we were trying to help families that didn't want to see us in person. And then also just wanting to help more families outside of BC because I think we do really really great work and so I we think do, we could we think so too. <laughs> yeah um, and so we designed a course based on our intensive model and it's videos we film videos demonstrations of all the strategies as well kind of as, a, as like a session like we pulled all the strategies into a session so you could see them in their individual component as well as what it looks like when you're trying to feed your child a a new food and using all of the strategies at once. Mm-hmm. And then the course is designed so that it starts off with easy foods. And then once you've mastered those, you then sign up for the next module where the foods get a little bit trickier. And then eventually by the third and fourth module, you're into like hard foods, new vegetables, dishes, and all Egg sorts plant, of kind of stuff. Yeah. 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 Meaningful <laughs> foods. Um, and then with that is a workbook. And then if you're wanting more support, you can sign up for Zoom sessions where we coach you with your child in the moment. Oh, so I have a family great. in Ottawa right now and she she'll sit on she'll sit with her son and I will coach her and she'll have her three new foods in front of her and I'll say, okay, let's start with Greek salad. And then she'll chop up the pieces and she'll show me on the screen how big the size of bite is and I'll give her the thumbs up if I think it's okay. And then we'll introduce it to her son. So that's the course. So it's, it can be as hands-off as you want it, or you can get support from us through the computer, which is good and bad. A lot of people are burned out by the computer by now, but that's okay. Um, (laughs) You know, there's so many, it just speaks to me to have an online option because there's so many nights where I feel like I don't have the time to take on one more thing, but an online course means that well, I'm sitting on my daughter's floor waiting for her to sleep for the 15th hour. I can educate myself. Watch <laughs> these videos. If yeah. you're, right. And, and I feel like, you know, highlighting experts is one thing, but it feels so out of touch when you're just in this little town in Wisconsin where I used to live and, and you're just not around the, the help. 
So to me, it just explodes your impact. I'm grateful, grateful we can offer this to our people. And where do you find it? Where do people find it? On our website. On your website. Okay. Which we'll we'll link in our description. And it also gives parents a process for how to introduce foods and which I love, love, love. Because you're sort of, oh, you're sort of overwhelmed. You're like, where do I start? Which foods? And every day it's a new food where this is truly a process of, and, and someone's coaching you and providing you with feedback and giving you email support, which is really nice too. But then if you want to find someone locally, I would look for a behavior analyst or someone with some yeah. behavior background. Um, I, I personally think there's more options in the States than there are in Canada. I feel like we're the only people in Canada that offer this type of therapy. But when I was learning about this and wanting to make this my area of expertise, there was quite a few clinics, um, but most of them were attached to hospitals. So, right. which suggests you have to have a child that's malnourished or nutritionally deficient to get some support. Mm. But, but that's my bias. I'm very <laughs> pro behavior. So we are biased right there with you, my friend. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Do you have yeah. any kind of guideline of like when somebody should seek out like professional services for eating, as opposed to like what could you know be like typical? children behaviors just you know as a picky eater as opposed to like a feeding issue yeah that's a really I know good question I know it's different obviously for different people but I feel like it's so subjective and it's really up to you as a parent mm-hmm. you know is your quality of life poor because of this issue are you is it you know are you finding it so stressful and you're dreading meal times? then I think you should get help I don't think it needs to be that my child's underweight or um, I'm having to give them, you know, five pediatures a day to maintain some caloric intake. I think it really is a, a parent, you know, decision because too often parents listen to doctors and then doctors are like, no, 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 just wait. It'll get better. And they and always want next... you to wait for everything. And you're so stressed out and it's affecting your relationship with your spouse. And, you know, that's my answer. It's not really clear cut. Or, you know, we could be more def- definitive and say your child's not eating a food group. That's pretty alarming. That's That suggests that they need some help. Um, yeah. I mean, Christine, do you have anything to add there? Do you think there's... I just say if, if you're thinking of, of reaching out for help, I would do it sooner rather than later. We know the mm-hmm. older the child gets, the harder it is. Um, they get more rigid in their ways. It takes more exposures for them to like a food. And so if it really is impacting your family's life and, or if you're meeting a delivery truck for freight. Yeah. That's always the time. (laughs) Yes. Yeah. Do you have any tips for like, say somebody has a child who's restrictive, a restrictive eater and you want to go about changing that. Like we talked about, like with the processed food or the juice boxes Mm -hmm. or whatever baby so is would you suggest to be to take away that food that you don't want them to have or do you like try to add something nutritious to that Mm -hmm. like so say they just eat pancakes for dinner and that's that's the only thing they want for dinner they don't they won't eat anything else you talking about me no (laughs) that's what i want for dinner too (laughs) do you want to answer that christine i'd say keep it because when you start introducing foods like i said before they're not going to be eating a portion of food so, um, and we often say, you know, keep their regular foods and then just add small tastes of these new foods that you're introducing. Sometimes parents find it easier to work on these new foods in a, in a meal context. And then sometimes parents find it easier outside of a meal context. It really depends 
um, preferences. Like what the situation is, yeah. Yeah, so maybe tasting sessions happen outside of meals and then their meals are still pancakes until those foods that you're practicing get easier and then you can mm -hmm. start incorporating them into meal times, which usually works better for parents just because they usually have, you know, other children and meal times are hectic as <laughs> yeah. why add another difficulty factor to the meal mm -hmm. oh that makes sense yeah we like to keep foods that are considered safe in that category we don't want to touch them or yeah it cause more away. stress yeah. yeah just expand their repertoire really you don't want to restrict it even more mm -hmm. i keep the pancakes for dinner rachel yeah <laughs> add some sausage <laughs> or blueberries yeah oh, chop up that yeah. chop up that egg <laughs> does anybody have any other questions i really am just so grateful i really am grateful yeah it's fascinating it really i'm is just most proud of you lauren for the newsletter happy new year you're in the second month of doing it and <laughs> thank you really extraordinary partnership i just am i'm proud of you ladies for building what you have because again it's life-changing and saving yeah, it's a great resource too. I mean, because there are a lot of places where you don't have access to even, or you have, you know, six month wait list yeah. to get in some place. Is there a and, wait list for your, or a date set up for your online course, or could you get it on the Tuesday you need it and start? Yeah, you could start. It's easier okay. to, yeah. Mm -hmm. it, our intensives are a whole other story, but yeah, online courses. Very ready accessible. to go ready yeah. to go okay yeah it's right <laughs> ready to go, to go people you can go get it right now on the website tonight possibly with Tabitha in the morning Cabrera. whenever you listen to this episode you can go yeah. pick that up Lauren and Christine again I want to thank you so much thank you everybody for listening tonight thanks, thanks for having us thank yeah. you nice yeah thanks you for being here thank you so much Links and everything uh, for these wonderful ladies to change your lives will be in the description. Thank you for listening to our We Aren't an Expert, But They Are series. We'll see you for the next one. Bye, everyone. Bye. Bye. Thank you for joining us at the table for this episode. Check out the description to find where you can sign up for our newsletter, how to become a supporter, and find links to us individually. Join us next Monday for more. And while you wait, check out our content on Facebook and Instagram. If you are enjoying the podcast, please make sure to subscribe and rate and review us wherever you listen. To contact us, you can email us at tableforfivepodcasts at gmail.com. We can't wait to sit with you again.